0: This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford HealthCare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC, News Talk 1080, and WTIC.com.
1: Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we're going to answer all of your health questions today. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and I welcome you to a rather windy Saturday, and this is our 14th consecutive show discussing the coronavirus and the COVID-19 as we call it. Um, We've all been learning more about COVID-19. Every day there is new information. So what I hope to do today is really talk about some of the topics that have been coming up during the week, as we always do. I'd like to emphasize today, and we're going to do a little segment on some of the potential treatments that we've been hearing about and anxiously awaiting for this problem. My guest on the show today will be Dr. Saeed Hussein. Dr. Hussein is the chief clinical officer at Trinity Health of New England. We're going to get an update on what's going on there, at specifically at St. Francis Hospital, and uh, catching up with that. Uh, so, basically, people need to understand the virus is not going away. Okay. It's not gone away for a while, and now we could start doing more things. What's happened is we've learned to adapt to it. Um, you know, we've reached, we've been waiting to reach this peak. Uh, what's happened is we've reached this peak, but it's not been this sharp drop-off. It's essentially been a slowly declining plateau. And what people need to understand now is they say, well, we have room at the hospital. We have this... The actions that we took two or three weeks ago are what caused this, I don't know, respite in terms of these declining numbers that we're seeing of hospital admissions. So it's interesting that it's not that the virus has gone away. It's just that, well, in a sense, we just have more room for people at the hospital in order to provide care. So there's not that overwhelming number. But the numbers are still staggering. As of this morning in Connecticut, we have 32,411 cases with 2,874 deaths in Connecticut. In the United States, over 1.3 million cases of COVID-19, over 78,000 deaths. That's dramatic. Do you remember when we were hearing these numbers of 60, 65,000? We're at 78,000. There's no doubt in my mind that between now and August 4th, we're going to be over 100,000 dead Americans. And that's what drives home the need for us to do the right thing. The global numbers are astonishing. Over 3.9 million cases, over 274,000 deaths. And I try to really break things down and make them simple for myself. And it's it's one of the things I like to do is try to simplify things in terms of how to communicate this and how to understand it. You know, a lot of us understand war. A lot of people are saying this is war. Uh, We also understand football and sports. Basically, you have offense and defense, right? Our defense right now, we are playing defense. The virus is in control. And we're on defense. So what are our defensive plays? There are only three. Identification, in which you identify the enemy and where they are. Isolation, hide from the enemy. And contact tracing, trace the movements of your your enemy. That is defense. And that's what we're doing now. So let's look at this, identification, the testing. I don't think you have to be an exceptional scientist to understand that the testing has been inadequate in this country. Let me summarize. We had not had enough testing. Federal government said we have plenty of testing, but we didn't. We didn't have the swabs. We didn't have the reagent. Our states didn't have the testing available. And still do not. We haven't figured this out yet. You need to test and find out where the enemy is. Where is this virus? We hear about the Abbott test, right? The point of care test, which is what we really need. But one of the problems is we have flooded the market with inaccurate tests. The Abbott test has a reported 15% false negatives. That means that 15 out of 100 people are going to test negative who actually have the COVID-19 virus. So they actually have the condition. So we didn't have enough tests, but now we have some pretty poor tests. The point-of-care test is probably the most important thing, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. That's a test. Point-of-care means you show up get tested, and within 10 or 15 minutes, you have a result. That's what you need. That's what they have at the White House, right? They have like 12 of these units going all the time, and and they are the perfect example of how this works. The other test we need is the antibody test. There are 140 of these tests on the market. Only 10 have even been looked at by the FDA. So these antibody blood tests where you get to read the result and know if you had the virus at some point are tremendously inaccurate. And then isolation, right? So we did testing, now isolation. We stay at home, we're wearing masks, we're social distancing. Those are the right things to do. You need to hide from your enemy until you have an offense. And that is the huge point here. Now some people are saying we can't wear masks. I've heard I'm starting to see all kinds of excuses. I haven't heard one yet. Well people say, well, I can't breathe when I wear a mask. If your respiratory system is so disabled that you can't re- breathe through a very thin mask, uh, you shouldn't be out of your home. And the invoking HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act to say that's why I don't need a mask is totally false. So there aren't excuses for not wearing a mask if you go out in public. So people should be doing that. And then there's contact tracing. How do we identify the contacts of people who have been positive and isolate them? And we need to get this going. Now, when we look at the offensive side of the equation, when we're ready to go on offense, the offense consists of two things. Treatment and a vaccine. You have to have a weapon if you're going to go on offense. We don't have that yet. And later in the program, we're going to look at what the potentials are. But the antibody testing and the actual point of care testing for the virus, not the antibody testing, the point of care testing is crucial. And where is it working? As I mentioned, it's working in the White House. Right? A point-of-care test is a test that everybody, we've come to understand, everyone in the White House now gets tested every day. Everybody, everybody who works there. And they have come up with two or three people who are now positive. They were negative yesterday, they're positive today. What do we know about those people? Well, first of all, the point-of-care test was one that was administered before they went to work that day. We know that they are now positive. They were negative the day before, and we know that they were spreading the virus for five days prior to testing positive. So therefore, you need to contact Trace, which is what they're doing. Who was in contact with these people? And those people need to be isolated and notified and potentially quarantined. So the system works, the system of, identification, isolation, and contact tracing work in an environment. At least it's working in the White House, but it's not working for the rest of us. And we talk about vulnerable populations. Let's take that same example and bring it to a vulnerable population, say a nursing home, right? How do we keep these vulnerable people away from the virus? How do we keep them safe? Well, you test everybody in a skilled nursing facility or any closed facility. Those who are positive, you isolate. But now you have employees coming in every day. Those employees, in turn, need to be tested every day when they go to work, as if they were going to work in the White House. So you get there a little early. You get you either wipe the inside of your cheek or whatever test they're using, and in 15 minutes after they put it in the machine, we'll know if they're positive or not, if they're coming to work that day. That's how you protect. Those are the tests we need. And when we talk about the populations at risk, we're talking about skilled nursing facilities where elderly live. All healthcare facilities and first responders. And the military. We can't have this virus running through our military. So that's the outline of for how to play defense. We're going to talk more about offense later in the show. Next up, we're going to be taking a short break and then chatting with my guest, Dr. Saeed Hussein from St. Francis Hospital. We're going to talk about testing and what's going on at St. Francis Hospital. Also, we're going to take questions. The phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and one 800 966 9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host Dr. Anthony Alessi and I have the pleasure of welcoming my guest on today Dr. Saeed Hussein. Dr. Hussein is a senior vice president and in the regional Chief Clinical Officer for Trinity Health of New England. He has been a guest on our program before. We thought we'd bring him back for a little update. Welcome to the show. Welcome back, Dr. Hussain.
2: Good morning, Dr. Alessi. Thank you for having me back.
1: So let's talk a little bit. Give us an update. What's going on at St. Francis and regionally for uh, Trinity Health with respect to COVID-19?
2: Sure, would be happy to. So I was listening intently before the break, as you mentioned Uh, testing, uh, both diagnostic, um, which included point of care, serology, the test, trace, isolate mantra, which should be, you know, front and center for all of us to get a handle on this pandemic. But within within the region and indeed across the nation, testing has evolved quite a bit since the start of this pandemic, as you and your listeners may well be aware. So Trinity Health of New England, which includes St. Francis Hospital in Hartford, continues to expand testing services to serve our communities. And in the last several weeks, uh, Trinity Health of New England has launched in-house testing capabilities, which previously did not exist for COVID-19, uh, in all three markets. So that's Waterbury, Hartford, and Springfield, Massachusetts, and has also expanded the number of third-party diagnostic labs utilized. Um, and we're very excited that there is a new partnership with Quest Diagnostics that kicks in kicks off from Monday, which will significantly increase our testing cap- capacity.
1: How reliable are these tests? These
2: are FDA-approved tests. They're, they're quite reliable. These are diagn- So so I'll take a step back. So for the listeners, they need to know that there are two, two buckets we're looking at. First is right. the diagnostic, which detects pieces of the virus and indicates whether we have current infections. The second bucket, a little bit more controversial because we're getting to learn more and more every day, is serology, which is antibody testing. And so antibody tests basically basically looks for the presence of these specific proteins, which are made in response to infection. And the antibodies can be found in the blood of people who are tested after an infection and, and have had an immune response to the infection. They're imp- important for detecting previous infection. Especially in people who've been asymptomatic, which means no symptoms.
1: One of the things that troubles me is we're testing and all our guidelines say we need to be able to test anybody who has symptoms. Isn't it too late? I mean, really, shouldn't we be out in front testing everybody who's vulnerable um, as they are in in the White House, for example. Nobody, they're not waiting for symptoms to appear to test everybody. Now, I understand we have a shortage, but is shouldn't that be our goal at this point?
2: Absolutely. 100% agree, Dr. Alassie. So that's a great question. So in order to meet that, and we've seen across the nation vulnerable patient populations who have been impacted more, uh, in, in particular African Americans and Hispanics, And the mortality rate is much higher in these patient populations too. So what Trinity Health of New England is doing, taking a cue from the uh, governor from the state of Connecticut, is even if we want to ensure that we can test anybody who walks through our drive-through test centers, which are located at Johnson Memorial Hospital, St. Francis Hospital, and um, in Waterbury at St. Mary's Hospital. And so even if there's no order, we have now... um, A a process in place, we've put together a process in place to ensure that not only will the patient um, be tested, but also will have the opportunity to follow up at a specialized uh, clinic um, designated for COVID-19 diagnoses.
1: The point of care test, I mean, is what we're striving for. I mean, that's what's going to open things up, right? We're talking about it, sports coming back, but we have to test every athlete right before they go out, um, and and eventually, until we get a treatment, we're going to want to test every healthcare worker, right, before they go to work, um, if we can. Isn't that another goal of ours, really, to have that quick fifteen-minute test um, to tell us, do we have that yet? Is this Abbott test? something that is enough to help us get there?
2: So um, we would like to get to a point where we would be able to rapidly turn around test results. It's, there is still a lot of discussion in the medical community, Dr. Leslie, about whether we would want to test anybody and everybody. And how frequently would that be? Because as you know, the test is a snapshot in time. So for sure. instance, I may take a test today, but tomorrow when I take the test or day after, I might turn positive. And so... The the foundation that this, in in order to get control on this pandemic would be to stick to social distancing. I can't tell you enough how important it is for your listeners to practice social distancing, which includes universal masking and and, um, adhering to uh, hand hygiene. Um, The Abbott test has had some um, issues uh, related to how reliable the information has been. But we strive to get to a point um, where we do have rapid turnaround tests. In fact, at Trinity Health of New England, we do have a short two-hour turnaround test uh, equipment and and capability now available.
1: Wow. Okay. So that's a game changer. Even getting that two-hour test is, is going to be key to opening up surgical services and things like that. I assume you're preparing to start opening up elective surgeries now?
2: So it is critical. That's a great question. So it is critical we are able to instill confidence in the community that our hospitals are safe. They have, we are able to offer a safe environment for patients in the community. You, we've seen how there's been a drop in the number of acute heart attacks, stroke, uh, appendicitis across the nation. So people, it's not like these conditions have miraculously disappeared they're still there. They're still lurking, but folks are just not seeking help. And there's probably more to this that we will discover as we learn about the pandemic. So it's important as part of that safe environment, we have adequate test capacity and capability to test anybody and anyone who requires a test. Ensure that we have PPE, personal protective equipment. So if there is a second surge, third surge, we don't go scrambling looking for PP, but we have an adequate inventory, and that's what Trinity Health of New England is doing, um, ensuring that we have adequate medications, blood products, a daily monitoring of beds to ensure that, again, like I said, if there is a second surge, we have enough capacity to not only take care of COVID-19 patients, but also our regular community patients with heart failure, stroke, diabetes, and so on and so forth. A couple other things that I'd quickly like to mention is, Trinity Health of New England that we've implemented is universal masking for our colleagues and anybody who walks through our doors um, and screening, um, thermometer, thermal screening um, and visitor restrictions. Visitor restrictions are tough, I understand, but while we work our way through this pandemic, it is critical to be able to limit exposure.
1: Well, I'd like to keep going and, and we have a hard stop, but I want to thank you. Thank you for everything you're doing, And really instilling confidence in Connecticut citizens, in St. Francis Hospital, and all of Trinity of New England. Dr. Hussain, thanks again, and I look forward to chatting with you again.
2: Thank you very much, Dr. Les.
1: Okay, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back with your questions. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and we're going to take some questions. The phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You can also reach me at info at alessimd.com. I received one uh, comment via email, and that was regarding uh, my example of the White House doing things right in terms of... um, their identification, isolation, and contact tracing. And the comment was, if they're doing everything right, why aren't they wearing masks? And that's a a key point, so I stand corrected. Because now that they've identified people in the White House, the valet, and um, this woman, Ms. Miller, um, what we know is they have the virus, but they were spreading it for five days prior. If they had been wearing a mask, for that time, the amount of spread would be much reduced, right? We talked previously on this program about the r naught, the ability to spread a virus, whereas one person can spread it, uh, in the case of measles, to eight or nine people. We think the r naught, the spread for COVID-19, is two or three people, but you reduce that if you're wearing a mask. That's why wearing a mask is a courtesy to others. So had they been wearing masks like the rest of us in the world, um, it would have less impact on the rest of the population. Uh, Linda's on the line from Windsor. Linda, you had a question for us.
3: sir. Sure. Um, I walk a lot. I walk about four to five miles a day in my neighborhood, and my husband is very concerned about, like, this virus possibly blowing in the breeze, even if no one's around, I walk across the street. If I see someone approaching me, I do not get nowhere near six feet from anybody. What's your deal with outside exercise?
1: It's a great thing to do. I do the same thing. So do as I do, not as I say. So my wife (laughs) and I go out and walk as well. We bring masks. We have the mask. Usually if we're not around people, we walk on the sidewalk Uh, Mm -hmm. keep the mask usually down around our chin until we see someone put it up and cross the street much like yourself not getting within six feet of someone so there is less chance of it infecting you outside versus inside now your husband's concern about the blowing is always an issue if you're running behind somebody um who's not wearing a mask or riding a bicycle that's why you should be wearing a mask or at least have one handy uh, if you're going to come up against people uh, on the sidewalk. But other than that, I think you're doing the great. It's a great thing to do, Linda, is to really get outside and exercise uh, Thank you. and have the mask handy.
3: OK, I will take All your right. advice. All right. Thank you, doctor.
1: OK, uh, well, we have Paul on the line uh, from uh, Simsbury. Paul, you had a question. Paul.
3: They never really explain what I I think I know I'm talking about. But essentially, polio had a vaccine, which eradicated it, as I understand it. Hepatitis B, if you get pretested and don't have the antibodies, you get two shots or something, you eradicate it. So I brought this up to my friend in New Orleans and said, look, it, they're not going to have a vaccine that's, quote, unquote, a cure like those two examples. And he said, Well, those things mutate too and then I said great but they haven't mutated enough that they're constantly changing the vaccine and I want you to tell me why Fauci or any of these people never really clarify there probably isn't going to be a cure quote unquote like those two other examples if they are in fact cured you follow my point
1: I do exactly uh, and uh, great question. Uh, we're getting some feedback. So uh, I'm going to answer your question. We're going to hang up and, and answer your question. It's, it, this is a great question, Paul. So the question becomes, with other diseases, like let's take smallpox, let's take measles, uh, polio. These are other viruses, okay, that we have been able to eradicate by vaccination. So... The question becomes, how much will COVID-19 mutate and change that would make that vaccine unusable? So far, the information, and again, we're still finding out what we don't know about a virus. But as far as SARS-CoV-1, so there are two of these, right? SARS-CoV-1, SARS-CoV-2 are our experience with SARS-CoV-1 in 2002 was that that virus never mutated very much. It never had much impact because we isolated it and it never took hold. So historically, and from what we're seeing about the virus, whatever changes it has made, it has not been significant enough at this point that we know of, that a vaccine would not eradicate it. And again, it's based on our knowledge of SARS-CoV-1, that previous virus that we dealt with. So the impression is, and, and it's an impression, Paul, is that this will be able to be treated with a vaccine similar to polio and other viral illnesses that have been tremendously incapacitating. Should the virus mutate, and you have a vaccine, it does not take much to tweak the vaccine if you need to. But the impressions are that this is not a rapidly mutating virus, and we're basing that on our experience of SARS, sudden acute respiratory syndrome type 1, and this is type 2. Thank you. That That's a great question. Uh, Patty's on the line from Naugatuck. Patty, you have a question. Okay, people living in... um.
2: That were basically homebound in lockdown that a lot of the new covid cases were coming from those areas and it it triggered something in my memory um i wondered if you thought it was possible that the covid might have actually started in if it was an apartment complex for example that don't have negative pressure rooms like many hospitals do um that actually it started with maybe someone who was positive and via the ventilation carried by the droplet
1: was brought to other areas of the facility well, that's, that's a great question. We're getting feedback, so I'm going to answer it. We're going to disconnect you and answer it. Um, so, yes, that could be. It could have to do with ventilation. But the interesting part of that is that it has to be a close ventilation system. Don't forget, this virus doesn't live very long on inanimate surfaces. But obviously, it can be transported pretty easily. So, could it have come from that situation from uh, you know, and we have these hot spots, right? These so-called hot spots where we see the most virus? You know, we haven't seen a lot of hot spots in apartment complexes. So I wouldn't start being nervous because I live because you live in an apartment. Uh, but uh, by the same token, this has not been a particular hot spot that we have been alarmed to to start uh, working through the ventilation systems. Do ventilation systems need to be upgraded and things such as that? Absolutely. Is the best place to be outdoors? Absolutely. Uh, people are recommending now that the weather gets nice, opening windows. Um, and, and that may be, again, very helpful. So uh, as much as that is possible, I don't think that it's it's likely right now um as an area of concern next we have tim from broadbrook brook you had a question about face mask tim yes hi you had a question about face mask
4: well it wasn't really a question it's a statement so in the, initially dr fauci said that mitigation with the face mask isn't going to help now they've ch- it, it, I understand that there are different kinds of face masks, but the people that are wearing face masks, because all the good face masks are being taken by medical professionals and first responders, as they well should, these other things, it's a farce. It gives you a false sense of security, thinking that you're not spreading it. When go to a restaurant, and I, have, I see people regularly. They're touching their face. They're touching the mask. They're touching the counter. They're touching their face. They're touching their food. No plastic gloves, no nothing like that. You know, um, if any of this stuff is true, and I think it's mostly hype, and it's due to the fact that they get more money for these patients because they treat them as, with COVID. Um,
1: Who's that? Then
4: you, I think we need to, to start looking at whether there's actually this big a problem or if there's people who are driving this whole thing who are profiting financially from this, like Trinity Health, no. saying that the governor is doing such a great job. The governor is a buffoon. <laughs> Anybody okay. who thinks otherwise is, is got an
1: agenda and all right thank you oh are you finished okay uh so a couple of things um let's look at things uh in the recent quinnipiac first of all there are so many issues that he raised up first of all the face mask work i don't know what restaurant he's going to but um certainly face masks have been helpful uh whether dr fauci said that originally or not If this is a hoax, um, well, we have 78,200 dead Americans, um, so uh, I don't see where the hoax is. Um, As far as the governor of our state, his approval ratings have never been higher. So when you look at the polls, um, certainly uh, Tim from Broadbook is in the minority. But more importantly, in the most recent Quinnipiac poll, 38% of Connecticut residents feel that it's appropriate to reopen immediately or in a few weeks. 59%, so a majority of Connecticut citizens, feel that it's safe in a few months or longer. The idea that hospitals are making money off this is ludicrous, absolutely ludicrous. Um, I know that Hartford HealthCare and their recent statistics have shown that they're losing between 50 and 75 million dollars a month. They don't make money. Nobody makes money on this. Let's make that clear as far as health institutions. That's not where the money comes from. So, uh, Tim, uh, I, I I don't even know uh, what else to say, uh, but you should be wearing a face mask, buddy. And um, that's the rule. And that at least shows others that you care enough. We're going to take a short break and then I'm going to be back. Uh, Ed from Middletown has some questions for us and we'll get back to that. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and in this uh, final segment, I want to get to some questions, so uh, we'll get to them quickly. Ed from Middletown, you had a question.
4: Yes. Hi, doctor. Thank you. Uh, I was listening to a New York radio station, and there was a doctor explaining why so many elderly were dying, and besides the underlying conditions, he said It was partly caused by the medicine, the high blood pressure medicine that they would take, and it allows the cell to open up and the virus can come in. And my question is, if that's the case, why don't they take people off high blood pressure medicine? And I'll hang up and listen, and thank you again.
1: Great question, Ed. Uh, As I've said before, we still don't know what we don't know. What we know is lisinopril, an antihypertensive medication, increases an enzyme called ACE2. And we also know that COVID binds to ACE2 when it gets in the body. Now, the question then becomes, and again, a lot of this is theoretical. Could this make someone on lisinopril more susceptible to worsening from COVID-2 If they get infected, it doesn't make them more susceptible to infection. No, no one has proven that. So it is a theoretical thought, but no one has said, wow, look at all these people who are all on lisinopril who died from COVID two, COVID-19. So with that, it is a theory. What we do know, Ed, is that you have a greater risk of dying by not treating your hypertension. Lisinopril has been a great treatment for that. So your risk for heart attack and stroke is much higher than having a poor outcome from COVID-19. At least at this point, from what we know, great, great issue, but it's not a reason to panic. And I think whatever station that doctor was on, um, he's he's causing undue panic with a medication that reduces risk from other problems eldridge from new britain you had a question
3: yeah hi uh on monday lamont um said or told people to keep disinfecting their hands can you speak to how ridiculous it would be to wash your hands with bleach or lysol and how toxic that is uh
1: absolutely so the question becomes: Using when he talked about using hand sanitizer, obviously we're talking about using an alcohol-based uh, hand sanitizer. And there are ways of making. If you can't get it at the store, there are ways of making your own. It's it's not that hard to do. So I I agree with him that we need to keep sanitizing our hands multiple times. And I think hand sanitizer has become. A little bit uh, a little bit more common and, and easier to find but there's no substitute for warm water and soap 20 seconds of washing your hands and washing your hands as frequently as you need before you put your hands to your mouth before you eat wash your hands and this is going to help us in general when it comes to flu season or other problems so uh, I agree with the governor but I um, No one is saying use high amounts of bleach. This virus is very susceptible. Uh, Even if you use some dish soap uh, and and some warm water, it'll be fine. So uh, you don't necessarily start having to use high doses of chlorine. That would be a mistake. Uh, Next, we had Rich from Farmington. Good
5: morning. Can you hear me? I can. Great. Uh, Three things. Number one. Uh, nice job recapping everything, you personally and uh, your guest today. It's a shame that uh, you two aren't available for some of the other presentations, including the national level. Those comments are sincere, Doc. I'm struck as I was listening to what you were saying and what your guests said. Effectively, if we did those things from the very beginning, the total to date of the deaths would be much, much less. I'm sure you are aware that more than half of the deaths are New York, New Jersey, and some other states closely abutting us. I think the key bottom line I'd like to get across and hear your reaction to, even if you have to limit the amount of time with other callers, it's this. Again, listening to what both of you said and what I'm hearing you respond to other questions, we can effectively open up the state immediately by simply following the things that have already been put in place as an advisory
1: Absolutely. So uh, we're going to disconnect you. I only have like 30 seconds to respond, uh, but you have made some great comments here, Rich. We have the roadmap to get back. The roadmap was given to us by the CDC. We have guidelines that unfortunately the federal government and the White House have reneged on. But those guidelines that our governor and Governor Cuomo and Governor Murphy are following are the way we're going to get back. It's going to take some time, but we'll get back safely. With that, I need to close. It's been a great show. I've really enjoyed all our callers, and I want to wish everybody a happy Mother's Day. And please, use a mask. It's a key item for us all staying healthy. Until next week, please stay healthy.
0: This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.